Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Matthew Wazinski. Matthew is a designer, researcher, educator, and author on contemporary issues in design practice and research. He has over 20 years of professional experience in graphic, interactive, exhibition, and experiential design. He's an associate professor in the Ullman School of Design at the University of Cincinnati, PhD researcher in transition design at Carnegie Mellon University, and associate editor for the communication design journal, Visible Language, and the author of the book, Design After Capitalism. And that's where we'll be spending a bulk of our conversation. And Matthew, I want to welcome you to the deep dive. How are you? All right. Thank you. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. You know, it, there's, a, there's a reason why I, I got the Cincinnati and Chicago piece kind of wrong, because in my head, I have a question toward the end when we get to Off the Dome, which involves Chicago. All right. I'm ready for that. So, <laughs> so Chicago has been like percolating in my, in my mind, um, particularly because of one of the things that I found most interesting about your story and the book is that you are from Detroit. And obviously Detroit and Chicago are, are significant rivals in almost everything. So we're going to table that for a moment. But I did live in Chicago for a while. So I, I've got some, <laughs> I got a little bit you of got love some roots those there. cities. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, see, you're a magnanimous person, right? Because as a, as a native New Yorker, you know, I detest Boston. Like deep, deep within my soul, I detest Boston. And I'm sorry for listeners who, who might be living in Boston or from Boston, but I hate Boston. And it's 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 largely a sports thing, right? I'm a Yankees fan, Knicks fan, all that kind of stuff. So I hate the Celtics. I hate the Red Sox. There's nothing that I could ever, I could live in Boston for 30 years and I would still hate it. So you're a, you're a much better person than me just right off the bat because you can have some love. <laughs> and I live in Ohio now. And so I have to deal with like the University of Michigan, Ohio State rivalry <laughs> all the time oh, as well. Yeah, so. that's, an, that's <laughs> another other angle. <laughs> Yeah, whole other angle. My life is filled with with rivalries. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I went to Howard, so we have we're basically the rivals of every HBC. Every, right? Everybody else, yeah. Um, everybody else. Um, went to Duke, hate UNC, Yankee fan, hate the Red Sox. So my life is rivalries. Um, but the, but Detroit is a, a very is an interesting city for a lot of reasons, and you highlighted early on in the book as one of the formative ways in which you saw capitalism really take hold of of an American city in a way that I, I would argue Detroit is, is still trying to, you know, recover from, build back from, become something new. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about those formative moments in, in Detroit and, and how that, at least from a kernel perspective, started to shape some of your thinking. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for that. So I should probably I should probably clarify before I get called out that I, I was I was born and raised in in the sort of metro Detroit sprawl so in various of the sort of um, outer suburbs anywhere between Detroit and Ann Arbor. My dad was born in Detroit in 1950, which was kind of a you know I think a certain moment in in Detroit's you know its status as what I, I think I refer to the book as kind of this gleaming beacon of what industrial capitalism meant to the United States in this post-war period. And, uh, you know, I reference uh, a number of economists who describe that in various ways that, that, that complicate that, that image in a way. Uh, and there are all kinds of maybe problems with seeing this as being, you know, the sort of egalitarian uh, American society uh, because so many people were excluded from it along, along lines of, of race and, and gender and other, um, you know, other statuses. Um, but at the same time, it, it shows us uh, that this this kind of moment, which I think a lot of people have imagined as being like, what is kind of the the beautiful possibility of capitalism, which is it really allows there to be this big, you know, working middle class, achieving the American dream, you know, upward mobility and these kinds of things was actually a very brief moment, you know, in, in the overall arc of, of American history and sort of the history of capitalism that this period of time from you know roughly the end of World War II to the early 1970s before I was born 
was sort of this, uh, you know, this this ascension and this this decline, uh, all all in this this brief period of time. And I think that the the thing that uh, maybe stood out to me growing up, you know, uh, in the Detroit area in the 1980s and 90s was that that city had really fallen apart, and that that high water mark in its history was really not that long ago, but. We, you know, I mean, I, I say something in the book about, uh, you know, watching RoboCop cop as a kid, and it's like, <laughs> that's like, you know, an absurd sort of inflation of, of Detroit in the future, but hitting on all exactly the, you know, the social problems that, um, that the city was experiencing. And so, you know, what does it mean when, you know, like your hometown is, is, is a punchline because of, you know, the kind of decay it's in, and how did it get there so fast? And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, uh, as is probably obvious, it was about the city's wealth being built on industrial manufacturing of a single product category, the automobile. And when all of that changed in the 1970s, when industrialization became automated and all kinds of things happened to allow for, you know, globalization of manufacturing. I mean, as well as, I mean, there are, there are aspects of, you know, the feminist movement and other social and cultural movements that were happening in the 60s and 70s that started moving us to, you know, almost the need for there to be two earners in a household to, to be anywhere near what we might call middle class, that the entire thing started to shift very quickly. And to recognize that all of that happened like right before I was born, <laughs> and actually that, that the, what, what felt like during my lifetime, uh, kind of like the end of the Cold War and sort of moving into the, the, you know, the, the digital 21st century, that I think I had in my mind, and I think a lot of people around me and in, in my field of design had in, in our minds the idea of of an economy that was like that one that only briefly existed for about 20 or 30 years. And that if we were trying to like create something or get back to something, it was that, but that thing was long gone. And so I think some of it's just, you know, it's, it's like looking at your own childhood experiences as sort of framing and sort of shaping what you, what, how you think the world works and yeah. uh, finding out that uh, it's, it's not, it's not that way, at least not that way anymore. Yeah. And, you know, design is, is one of these things that I think it, it exists on this continuum, right? That it's it's not in a lot of the popular way in which we we think about design. And when I say popular, I'm meaning in business publications and and pop culture and and how the the notions of design and design theory have sort of permeated mm -hmm. and, and become part of the way we we use language across many disciplines. It's always very future facing, mm -hmm. right? Whatever the the future is. While there's there's things going on in the present and things that have happened in the past that are sort of um, mitigating factors toward toward that future. So staying on Detroit for just one more moment because I think it it gives us an opportunity to kind of segue into some other issues. You know, you talked about Detroit manufacturing kind of one product category, which is the automobile, the car, and you also mentioned like Robocop, right? Like a, a pop culture thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in how some of those things connect to one another in that I think RoboCop primed a lot of us in the 80s for sort of the inevitability of this sort mm. of decline. Mm -hmm. so, so that's one thing, right? That the, the state becomes this, this hyper-capitalist corporate model. You know, Detroit is taken over by literally a, a corporation. Right. And as the city falls apart, they have to, you know, make this mechanical RoboCop, right? Someone who can just do the job with no emotion, right? And and whatever. So that's the prop for the one person who probably hasn't seen RoboCop. And then I, I juxtapose that against the, the fact that Detroit was built literally for automobiles, mm -hmm. right? When I, when I visited the city and spent time there, the public transportation infrastructure is almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. Neighborhoods that look very close to one another on a map are actually very segregated and cut off from one another by the by literally by the way the streets are designed, right? So a lot of preamble to just kind of get your thoughts on how literally the the decision to focus on the automobile designed the city in a particular way that in my mind seemed to compound all of the challenges that that you highlighted toward the back end and then a pop culture moment like robocop kind of primed us for that decay right so they kind of built it it happened and then robocop was like told you so right, right. so like <laughs> like how do you like think about all of that in a in a design context and how the past and the present are kind of shaping our our future 
Yeah. Well, that's a great <laughs> long loaded question. I'm good at those. <laughs> and I'll start. Yeah, I'll say it. I'll start by I'll start by saying I appreciate you uh, like giving some airtime to the RoboCop reference here. <laughs> like it's not usually the point that gets taken up a lot when I talk about the book, but I will I will definitely bite at that. So yeah, I mean I think I, I think there are so many things that you just said that I think are sort of true, and I think slowly becoming more apparent to the kind like the, the problematics of design of of certain kinds at certain scales and the way that when they are as they typically are rather uh short-term focused that the even you know middle to long-term outcomes or impacts of of those decisions and the kinds of infrastructures and the kinds of environments that that those things which are being designed produce are are uh, not well tended to. And, um, you know, I, we could go sort of deep into like some specific examples or just zoom out and say, this is, I think, also part of this bigger kind of, you know, modernist mentality in a way, which has landed us in the climate crisis that we're in, that, that we, we think we can, you know, sort of throw things away and like there, <laughs> there's no away, right? Or that we can, we can you know, do the kind of extraction of, of minerals and raw materials and, and make products that we use for, you know, I mean, I'm holding up my, my smartphone or whatever, like, you know, 18 months and then it's, you know, garbage. Yeah, obviously this is not going to work very well for a long, for, <laughs> for the long term. And it's that kind of uh, immediacy and immediate thinking that I think design, uh, particularly over the 20th century, proved itself to be very good at um, in terms of thinking about the next the next season or the next year, uh, what the tail fins are going to look like on, you know, next year's car. Uh, that fits very nicely into a political economy or particularly an economy that, that wants short-term gain, you know, that sort of thrives on short-term gain. If we can just get like squeeze a little bit more out of what happens in this next product run and kind of not worry about all of, you know, to use the economic term, all of the externalities that will come out of that, then it's, it's a win for, for the company or whatever, you know, whatever the organization is that's trying to do that. And so I think design, I, I use the term uh, a lot in the book, design at the scale of the human body, which is my way of describing, you know, product design, uh, interface or interaction design, to some degree, you know, fashion or garment design, communication systems. And that's to make a difference between architecture and urban planning, which are also design fields that tend to think in longer scales, although don't necessarily <laughs> always do a better job of that, but, but that they're at least geared towards, towards bigger uh, physical as well as bigger uh, time scales. So, I mean, to bring it back around, I think, you know, the, the kinds of assumptions that would go into designing an automobile, for example, are the kinds of assumptions that, you know, we're going to need a, a city that is designed to accommodate that. We're going to need a whole sort of global scaled oil economy to sustain that. We're going to, everyone's going to need a garage, you know, I mean, it just keeps going. And then we're going to need, you know, we're going to, re- to repair those, those roads over and over and over and over again. And anybody listening from Detroit or even just Michigan knows what I'm talking about, <laughs> how bad the roads are. We're going to have to continue to maintain yeah. and continue to pump more resources into all of the things that are going to support this object. And, and that's just to think about maybe like resources like, you know, uh, raw, you know, what we call raw materials or, you know, energy or, or money, labor, not even to talk about maybe what the, maybe like unexplored social or political uh, ideas that are also wrapped up into that artifact might be. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think that's a, a, a perfect segue. And, I, and that's why I wanted to spend a little bit of time on Detroit, because I think it's, it really sets, it, it's such an interesting city because it, it's, it has so many things going on, that industrial promise that you talked about, you know, I juxtapose that against like the cultural promise of Detroit, mm-hmm. obviously being the home most famously for most Americans, they think of Motown, right. right? It's the it's the soundtrack in the movie that when the black and white hands have to build a barn or something, there you know, there's a Motown song right. in the background, right? So Motown brings us all together in a in a very um nostalgic way. But then there's a lot of other music that, you know, techno was born out of Detroit. You know, you were a musician, you mentioned, in, or are a musician, no one's ever past tense when, you, when you're a musician. Punk scenes, all of these things are permeating in Detroit. At the same time, there's like this heavy industrial story. So I'm always fascinated by Detroit as this sort of, sort of nexus of where a lot of these things happen. But um, jumping off from that and kind of getting into the, the meat of the book, and, and, you've, and you started to do that in a previous answer, this... This notion of design after capitalism, just asking the question or posing it as a statement sets us in a trajectory to start to examine the possibilities of, of what 
a future can look without this construct. So I want to give you an, an opportunity to share, you know, why you wanted to really pose the question, because posing it in my mind gets us already asking a different design type of question. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's if, if there's <laughs> if there's one basic goal, it's to it's to ask that. I mean, I have uh, you know spent a lot of words and pages to try to address like what that term design after capitalism might mean. But I also hope it is it is a provocation or a question for other people to try to grapple with. And, you know, the the, the reasons why are I, I think are many, uh, you know, how I got there. I have been a practicing designer for over 20 years, all of my uh, adult life. I started um, working in interaction design, doing early web and, and mobile design, working in kind of small scale startup-y kind of places. I've worked for really large nonprofit organizations. I've worked for, you know, big art museums doing exhibition design. I've done a lot of sort of branding and environmental communications. So I've worked at a lot of different scales in a lot of different contexts uh, in, you know, uh, the, the inside the paradigm of a, you know, of a dominantly uh, capitalist society, right? So I mean, that I was doing design in, in the paradigm in which I, I live and operate, no surprise, right? And there was always something a little, there was always something very exciting about it, right? Because there's always this kind of this, you know, it's the challenge, the thrill, the hunt. I mean, it's it's a competitive field and it's about, on some level, you and your creativity against everyone else you might compete against, but it's also your team working together to try to like, it's some kind of gamesmanship with the client kind of thing, you know? So like really thrilling work, but particularly when I started working on projects that were, were indeed global in scale, working with very large transnational corporations to do research to help them understand how they might better reach markets in places of the world that I will probably never visit. But I started having some real questions about what it was that I was doing. You know, like why, why, why would it be uh, in, in my best interest, let alone the people, you know, in, in the places where, you know, I was doing research in order to help my clients to, um, you know, to design or design things. And so which they might, you know, enter new markets, like, why would that be in our, in our collective benefit? And I struggled to answer that. And, and I didn't really have, I think, great tools to even, you know, ask the question in a deeper way than that. Like, what am I doing? And why am I doing this? And it kind of paused there for a minute, but then there was also the 2008 financial crisis, which was probably as, you know, in my, in my lifetime, that was the big moment of, wow, look at, look at how broken this is. Uh, look how many people are, you know, suffering and losing out because of this massive shell game and all the, you know, speculation going on in the real estate market and stuff like that. And of course, I, I really didn't understand much of it then either, but it was like seeing the, the fallout of something that was hard to understand that I had felt like I had, you know, a lot of skin in the game, but really had no control over. And, and of course, I was one of billions of people in that situation um, and still didn't quite have, I think, the, the language or the tools to think through that. And uh, as I moved into, um, you know, becoming a design researcher and working on projects that were you know, grant funded, getting getting some grant money to work on a project. Uh, for example, doing a project that I spent about seven years working on. My, my collaborator at the University of Illinois at Chicago, Dr. Jennifer Breyer, she and I worked on a project called The Living Women's History of HIV in the United States. And so we were using a combination of, of historical, public historical methods and what I would call participatory design methods to collect, uh, interpret, translate, and then you know, sort of collectively put these women's stories about what it was like to, to live with and survive uh, with HIV uh, in Chicago, in Brooklyn, uh, in North Carolina, to, to make public media in a really collaborative way with these women. And I could watch the, the value that we were creating, you know, in, in these women's lives and the lives of kind of the social and, and uh, kind of like health related worlds around them. And there's this, you know, I kept wondering, like, why can't this be a normal way of designing? Like, why can't this be a career <laughs> that doesn't require you to first become a professor and then go get the grant? Like, how might it be possible that this kind of work could become a kind of normal way of doing design? Because we can see the social value. We just can't really calculate the economic value. So I think a lot of these things, you know, kind of, you know, all the way back to some of the Detroit stories we were talking about to kind of my experiences as a young professional designer into starting to see, you know, ways that I could, I could watch the kinds of skills that I had gained as a designer and the kinds of practices that I knew as a designer operating in a different way as being kind of a glimmer of the, there, there must be other ways to think about this. And that's, I mean, mm -hmm. this is to put it in a very personal way. 
the outside piece, I guess, sort of outside of me and in, in the bigger discipline of design, things also changed a lot in that time as well. And so, you know, my, my, most of my early degrees say graphic design, graphic design kind of morphed into user interface design, which sort of morphed into this bigger thing we call user experience design. And people that were once, you know, trained in working with typography and, uh, you know, image production, things that are native to communication, to visual communication, got largely subsumed into product design, back into product design through the making of digital products and services. So that's happening, and at the same time, I think that's giving design a, a bigger sort of cultural, and also I'd say like sort of a, a bigger sort of business footprint that designers are finding themselves. Yeah, absolutely. In higher level strategic uh, positions within you know both commercial uh, organizations, businesses, corporations, but also in government, in, in health, in finance, even even to some degree in, in academic fields. And so that sort of like ascendancy in a way pairs with a moment where I think the discipline started to begin, like I did individually, the discipline starts to look at itself more critically. And so mm -hmm. we've had, you know, a pretty long history and design of questions about sustainability, about the environmental impact of sort of, you know, product obsolescence, planned obsolescence, et cetera. I'd say more recently, the discourse around decolonization, which I think came out of uh, you know various uh, discourses in the social sciences and began to come into design over the last I'd say decade or so, have also you know put a new lens on you know I'll say again sort of unexplored, often unexamined social and political uh, assumptions that designers cannot help but fold into the kinds of things that they produce and the kinds of worlds that that those things want to produce for others, and so. It's it was sort of in that combination of like we're talking a lot about the climate crisis, we're talking a lot about the sort of colonizing mindsets that go into design, and one thing that I don't hear people talking and I think quite enough about is the way that this political economy of capitalism is actually directly connected to those other two things. I don't think yeah. any one of those three problems or you know massive and I'd say problematic systems supersedes the other, but they're all intimately connected. And and it's in that connection that I think they're they're really the significant challenges because when you're when I'm reading the book and when we're having this conversation and I start to think about how the the word design and and I think I alluded to this at the very beginning it it almost takes on this life of its own right like when I when I think about my experience as as a professional person and things I've done I don't know if you know, in 2006, if I'm working on, on an account like with Jaguar or something, we, we use the language of designing an experience, right? right? We, were, we were throwing a party, right? Um, and, and now, you know, you see that kind of language quite routinely, right? And design, I think, in a, in a layman's term, and I'm, and I'm kind of speaking in generalities because I'm, I'm a person looking at culture, right? And looking at how ideas go from one place to another and, and permeate and shift and take on different meanings. And people will will think about design in the way like you held up your smartphone very, you know, at the very beginning. So I think Apple to many people mm -hmm. has has become when they think just casually about like a product that's designed in a in a cool way, Apple has become that sort of go-to thing. Right. Right. And so having said all that, what, what was really interesting is that you you talk about these realities that are bigger than ourselves. And so therefore it makes it very hard to grasp. And capitalism is, is one of those things. Climate change is one of those things. And, you know, I wonder if design is one of those things in and of itself, right? Because it's, it's, it supports and is involved in, in everything around us. And so it becomes very hard to pull it apart from all the things you, you see going on around you, right? Where, I'm kind of a supermarket nerd and I walk into a, a supermarket and I start to think about how it's laid out. How is this design? How does it work? Why does the packaging <laughs> look this way? And why is the lights this way? The music, like what are all these yeah. choices that they made to kind of get me in and keep me in? Right. So I'm, um, I'm curious about like how you think about that hyper objectivity that you talk about in the book and how it relates to design as a, as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I, yeah. So the, the term hyper object, which I introduced, I think, in the introduction of the book, I'm, I'm borrowing from the philosopher uh, Timothy Morton. He, uh, I think, would probably describe himself. I mean, somewhere kind of in the in the realm of the speculative realism 
field of, of contemporary philosophy. And uh, he uses this term hyper-object to describe those, those things, and I'm kind of air quoting here, but things, like something that we can name and kind of identify, but, but that they are, they are just too big in terms of scale and too big in terms of their time that we can't actually think them. Like we can't actually wholly think about climate change. We can think about it. We can feel it's you know excessively hot today <laughs> where I am and probably where you are. So we can feel that and then we can feel like turning on the air conditioning and sort of know like, well, that's probably not gonna help, but we're, 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 we're interfacing with the hyper object of climate change. But it's, it is too big for us to, to fathom. And I think the same is true for capitalism. It has so much of a history and it permeates so much of, you know, the intricacies of the tiniest details of our everyday life while also touching, you know, the global economy. And I think the same is true of design. And um, I think that has to do in, in the case of design with the fact that it is a term that can be incredibly expansive and then it can also be used in very specific ways. And so uh, probably one of the most uh, cited definitions of design and one that I allude to in the book is by a guy named Herbert Simon. And he says, and I'm going to paraphrase here and probably get it slightly wrong and I'll be called out by the design, design nerds later, but that along the lines of anyone who devises courses of action to move towards a preferable state, that this is design. And if you take that as a, as a definition of design, that's incredibly expansive. Like I'm going to, uh, you know, do anything that I'm going to do to make my day go better, that's a design decision. Okay, so everybody does it, right? And, and that's, it's clear. If we use the term in that way, everybody does it. There are also, uh, you know, particularly in kind of the scales I'm talking about since the beginning of the 20th century, specialized professional fields called design, like industrial design and graphic design. And, uh, and of course, there are many others. And, and there are more recent ones that have to do with this kind of emergence of a digital economy. So user experience design, which is, you know, not only one of the fastest growing professional fields in design, but in general. And the kinds of people that do user experience design are not necessarily going to, you know, schools where the title on their degree might say design. They could be coming from, from really any, any position or background or kind of, you know, educational experience or no educational experience being, being skilled or talented in whatever ways they are to try to craft something that creates some kind of preferred state. But I think the, the issue with, or I mean, it's not an issue, it's just uh, what's sometimes overlooked in that really broad and generalized definition is that there are actually like three different pieces to that definition. And I, I talk about this a lot with my students, which is one, we have to understand what is the situation as it is. Then we have to understand what a preferred state is. We have to know both of those things and name both of those things at some scale to know what it would take to, to close the gap. And then we have to do it. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's somewhat simple on one hand, but it's, it's paying attention to those three parts. And I think that the short-term, you know, quick return model of design that practices within a particular, you know, capitalist paradigm mindset is the one that doesn't imagine that the preferred state is something bigger than a new something, a new feature or something like that, or yeah. just the, the, the curve of, the, of the, the piece of metal. But that actually, uh, and I think design of various kinds is beginning to, or our design, design fields of various kinds and designers of various kinds are beginning to sort of take account of that, that this next move is really just one step on a much longer trajectory to get to a much bigger preferred state, which is to acknowledge that the kinds of things that we put out into the world shape other people's lives not just our own, but other people's lives. And we probably want to participate better with them to find out what works well for them, not to you know, sort of dominate uh, through the mediation of objects and services and yeah. communications. And how do we, how do we really, uh, you know, in, in any kind of reasonably ethical, collaborative kind of way, identify what those preferred states are, what those future worlds are that we want to inhabit? And I, I, I appreciate the design discourse that moves into naming future worlds as a plural which is also to say this is not one. We're, out, we're way beyond this idea that there's some universal, basic, you know, desired future for everybody. And, you know, I, I, I'm jotted down really fast when you wrote preferred states and making those types of, of choices and, and starting to think through that. Because recently I was, I was doing a workshop and, and talking about um, scenario planning and, and, and future design and the mentality of those things. How, how do you do those things? And one thing I want to ask you about is in, in those moments of trying to get to a preferred state or states, right? Like working through the thinking of that, there does need to be at some point 
some sense of consensus might be the might not be the the best word, but to some degree there has to be a, a coming together of um, trade offs as we think about what that preferred state is. So one of the things I offered to the to the group I was doing workshop with is. One of the things we don't talk about in in social spaces is conflict resolution, mm, right? Mm-hmm, like, right. you know, we, yeah. we really need to introduce conflict yeah, resolution a lot more into like our 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 future thinking, yeah. right? Like, it's it's not all charts. A lot of it is just <laughs> humans yeah. connecting to one another. So, putting putting that aside, but you know, when you're in a political economy that is generative toward really a preferred state of extraction, you know, how do you find ways to move and operate to get to another preferred state and build consensus when there's what I would consider real outside pressure to to not have that happen. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Not easily. <laughs> That's the short answer. But I do think, I mean, I think it has to do with, I mean, uh, and uh, it's too simplistic to say this as a starting point, but I think it's just a starting point, which is just to see what's happening, to sort of see how what seemed like trivial banal everyday kinds of decisions, this or that kind of thing, or even just, you know, choosing, uh, you know, to, to, to follow along with, with, with what might seem like a, you know, like a, a reasonable uh, selection of, uh, you know, steps I'm going to take to like get to work, what I'm going to do at work, what I'm going to do at home, etc. To sort of begin to reveal, I mean, what 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 goes into that? Like, what goes into those possibilities of existence? Like the the existence of the freeway system and the existence of the global oil economy, and so that there's a gas station so that I can stop and fill up gas or whatever. And I think you know, as far as I think I agree with your comments about conflict resolution, but I also think that there is an aspect of this kind of you know collective participatory future planning that that may be about finding mutual benefits even if they're not of all exactly the same kind which is also to acknowledge that any kind any anytime anything is labeled a social or political issue or a question it means that people are entering on some probably unequal footing right that that not everybody's walking into the space with the same, you know, challenges, needs, desires, et cetera, and that they don't all want to end up in the same place either, right? So it's like that, that, the, that the future states are plural because there's, hopefully, there's, there's a possibility of, achieve, of achieving some kind of mutual benefit um, from where we all are today to where we all want to be down the road. Um, as far as the, you know, the heavy external forces on an, extract, on an extractivist mindset, um, I mean, I do think that, I mean, one one argument that I hope is is at least somewhat compelling inside the book for people working in creative disciplines is that, I mean, there there is a lot of, I think, a joy and excitement in the work that we do. But we also all know that it's not a kind of labor that's attached to time in any way. You know, you could you could burn 60 hours a week and gain nothing, right? And maybe that's not always what you want to I have, do. <laughs> I have, I have the, the pages, I have the blank pages staring at me that will happily attest to that. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've burnt hours with nothing to show for. And, uh, and there can be a certain kind of joy to that, but when, you know, when... Uh, when we think about, you know, like what what is it that we are doing when we're working, and what is it that we are doing when we are, you know, acting as consumers of those things that would allow us to subsist and live our lives, and what are some? I, I think there's like an endless array of possibilities in the middle, you know, that we might collectively and individually find ways to become more. Uh, I'd say like diversify our portfolios of daily activities that have to do with our own subsistence, our own like activities of regeneration that don't include just buying things that are going to make us feel like that's happening. And this is a very minor sort of step, but if we start to then also attach that to, you know, sort of our our professional lives or our career lives, like how do we think about that and the things that we're putting out there in the world? And so I, I think I argue a bit about, uh, you know, that there's a certain kind of de-skilling that a lot of design has done, you know, oh, we'll just make a little something or other that'll do this for you and increasingly sort of remove you from, you know, knowing how to like fix your car or, you know, repair, <laughs> repair anything, yeah, um, absolutely. you know, it gets you kind of back onto the, onto the consumption treadmill. And I think we can both design against that. I mean, there are a lot of forces that are pushing us in that direction, but we can design against that. We know we can design against that. And we see some small pockets of, I think, promise in that direction. And I think we can also live against that. But I think it, we have to sort of identify that. And again, that's that's part of the reason for even using the term after capitalism in the title here, which is, you know, I guess questionable in the sense that it includes the word capitalism in it instead of naming something beyond. 
But what I want to do for designers in particular is for them to think about capitalism and think about capitalism in, in, the, in the mix, in the milieu of what it means to be a designer. And then to think about all the ways that once we've sort of seen what might be some of the you know, more problematic touch points between those two things, then we start to think, what can we do beyond that? It's also to acknowledge that, you know, it's not, I, I don't think many people that would probably read this book are really interested in going back to some kind of feudalism or some totally, you know, pre-industrial society. But that we're trying to figure out what, what mix of gains from the last 300 years plus uh, uh, what, what, what sort of problems that we might be able to transcend from the last 300 years can we combine to begin to find that preferred state and work towards it, not just in our professional lives, but also in our personal lives, not just individually, but collectively as disciplines, you know, as fields, as, you know, groups of people with collective interests. How do we do that? It's, you know, it's, it's interesting that you, you brought up the way in which we we push back against just the the constraints of living in this system, right? And finding ways to separate ourselves and that personal and and professional divide. And, and mm-hmm. one of the things that that I wrestle with in here is we we shift, we have shifting and we have shifted and continue to shift in what we call like a knowledge economy, mm-hmm. right? We're no longer as tethered or working, well, some of us, right? Because there's a lot of geographic constraints to that and, and race and class constraints to that. But the, the popular notion is that we are moving away from this sort of manual labor. And now we're in this knowledge economy where, you know, I don't make anything with my hands, but I think, and so therefore I get paid and, and all of the ensuing sort of downstream effects of that. And then I think again about how like things like hustle culture have become popular, right? Where people, you know, we're the product, yeah, right? Like if you're if you're out there in a, and it's not, this is not just a social media thing. So this is not a thing about like what people are doing on social media, but it's it's a, I don't know. I feel like it's a, it's just this ongoing, I'm a brand. I have to get myself out there. Like we, we talk about ourselves within a corporate structure and then that cements more of these market capitalist ideas, right? So if I'm going to work with somebody on a project, we have to figure out, it starts with who's going to pay for this, right? <laughs> like, how do we get this done? Even if it's you're writing a grant or, you know, there's something about like, it has to exist and come to fruition through a a market lens, right? And that market lens defaults us into a capitalist lens, right? And as opportunities shrink as capitalism becomes more extractive with less and less territory in which to extract, then we become more of that territory, right? Like we're now not just our consumer choices per se, but we're every little thing we click on, we're every little thing our eyeballs fall on. You know, I'm I'm painting a picture here to to ask now, you know, that shift to knowledge economy and the way in which we think about it, has it created more of a permanence of these ideas, even as we try to navigate into something other than these ideas? Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's bleak and I want to... No, it, no pressure. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's a little bleak and I want to say no, but I'm thinking yes. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that and yeah, the, the hustle culture thing, I think, is, is particularly pertinent for... Again, I mean, I, I, I try to... Sp- bring this back into the field of design, not to say that's the only place where it lives, but it's sort of what I, you know, what I know and what I see. I, I'm, a, I'm a design educator, which I've been in a position like that for 10 years. So I, I teach young designers, I see them every day, and I sort of get to experience with them both their aspirations and their fears and their kind of uncertainties about the world that they're entering into and the world that they will, you know, either perpetuate or work against. And so we talk and, and, and worry together and think of and, and talk about a lot of these things. And so I do think that, you know, one of the things that has shifted dramatically from that, you know, post-war industrial capitalist time period of, you know, let's say Detroit or, you know, other places in this country, you know, from the roughly the early 50s to early 1970s to where we are today is a completely different sense of what it means to be like, you know, working class and, you know, working class uh, that in, in a way that meant, you know, you work with your body and your hands and you're completely, you know, to use the Marxist term, alienated from everything that you produce to 
the shift of the the cognitive knowledge based cultural economy in which you know ideas have value ideas sometimes have value worth more than the the physical you know object that comes out of them and in that way people are maybe like a little bit less alienated from their labor you know as a designer i can say oh yeah yeah i made that thing i mean i might not get any <laughs> i got paid for it you know a long time ago and i might not you know it might not have my name on it or something like that but i got to participate in that and i see it in a kind of way and i, I you know again i i didn't experience you know working the lines in the automotive industry in the 50s and 60s to know what it was like then but i suspect it was a bit different so what does all this mean, I think? I think it means that we have, uh, we have moved into a space where kind of the relationship between any of us being laborers of, of any kind to the outputs of our work has shifted dramatically, but that also has changed a lot our relationship and some of, in some ways the tensions between the organizations, enterprises, businesses for whom we work. And so I, I'm particularly interested, there's, there's this historical moment I'm particularly interested in, which is the sort of social, political upheaval happening in the late 60s and, and early 1970s, not just in this country, but in Italy. And, and part of the reason I'm so interested in that is that there's a particular vein of uh, kind of social and political movements that, that have emerged from, that emerged in that time called the autonomia or the autonomous political movements. And they had, you know, striking factory workers at Fiat, you had striking students uh, at the universities, you had a feminist movement happening in a, you know, you know, highly patriarchal society. And these groups are coming together, with different kinds of issues that they're, that they find problematic, but basically saying like, that none of this is working. And the factory workers are saying, you know, yeah, we're represented by the union, but all the union wants is to try to fight for us to get a slightly higher wage. We want a different life. And similar things for the students. We don't want to go do that. We don't, we, we want a different life. And so what I find really interesting in that is that the kind of argument that came out of that movement was the refusal to work, you know, rather than, hey, we should all have full employment, which is kind of, you know, the typical labor history story of this country, full employment, high wages, et cetera. Like, we don't actually want to work. We don't, we don't actually want to work in the factory. We want to work kind of as little as we need to so we can go on to enjoy our lives. And, and, and that, that strain of thinking has, has, has continued in various movements. So some, some of the reference points in the book are from, um, you know, folks who I think I would identify with the accelerationist ideas that we, you know, yeah, we might continue to use. Some, some of the technological acceleration that we have to get us like past the point of, uh, of capitalism. And that's a really oversimplified way to put it. But I think inside there is this idea that, that we, might, we might refuse work or we might detach ourselves again from feeling like working full time and working as much as we are is actually a good thing. And part of the reason for that is that it, it might not be good for our mental health. It might not be good for our physical health, but it's also it is by its nature probably going to continue, regardless of the kind of work we're doing, to continue to burn up, you know, energy and materials and continue to extract and continue to exacerbate the kind of climate crisis and ecological crisis that we're going through. And so, you know, there's no way to put a nice little bow on that, <laughs> but to, yeah, yeah, but to think about like, what does, I mean, this is, uh, I, I talk about both ends of this uh this idea of degrowth a bit in the book and a bit how it fits into uh, design in particular. But I, I, I am uh, increasingly convinced um, uh, by those who, who are, are really calling for degrowth that it's the kind of thing that we're actually going to need both for our, our social regeneration as well as for ecological generation. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, we, we saw glimmers of this during the, the most marked moments of the pandemic, right? Right. right. Where by just the the force of the circumstances people had to just unplug right like the glo the global economy as we know it today sort of ground somewhat to a uh, halt right? right to a significant to a significant halt relative to where it had been and you know we were we were all like planet's recovering right like that was the <laughs> that was the the the, the just a little bit <laughs> the popular thinking yeah. right and now now it's all gone to shit again yeah. right as we're like you know back to normal with, <laughs> yeah. back to normal it, it's global global temperatures rise everywhere right and drought is now a new normal but you know and but i think what's what's interesting is you know because i'm always kind of coming back to the culture piece is that you know even the notion of it's all falling apart is a philosophical choice we're making mm. toward thinking about what our future is right and in in the book you you know very eloquently 
talked about and this is early on um your relationship with um Eric Olin Wright mm-hmm. and and how that connection and and talking about visible utopias and and all of that really impacted you and and influenced you and one of the things i i i i say when i'm when i'm working with folks around like time is that we have an opportunity like the past is very important to me mm-hmm. for, for many reasons because i think it's an opportunity for us to collaborate with those who came before us like right. we we build on the knowledge of those who came before us um much less of a oh this is a brand new idea guy i'm like Nothing's fucking brand new, right? Like we have we have pyramids, right? right? What could be new? Right. Um, so I I want to give you an, an opportunity to talk about how this this idea of visualizing a utopia, visualizing something that is different from the doom and gloom that we see, right? Because we we now have so much language to me around dystopia, right? We call it doom scrolling mm-hmm. when we're online. Like we just have normalized like giving in to the worst outcome. And I and I think that even on a very subconscious level affects how we can how we think about our power to influence the future. And it seemed like your interaction with with Eric Olin Wright was in a different vein. Right. Yeah. So I want to give you an opportunity to to share a little bit about that as we get kind of closer to the final two segments of the show. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thanks for yeah bringing that up and maybe allowing a little airtime for that for me to talk about, particularly about Eric Olinwright because he was somebody that I met and uh, it was it was sadly it was near the end of his life. Of course, neither of us knew that at the time when when we first met. Um, I had actually put together an exhibition of student projects that were design projects, again, kind of at the scale of the human body, imagining various, you know, further out futures. And some of them were pretty utopian and some of them were pretty dystopian. And I sh- I actually sent that catalog to Eric Wright. I had been really fascinated by his book called Envisioning Real Utopias, which I think was published in about 2010, but was really based on decades of research that he had done uh, around the world. Um, he's, he, he, he was a, an American sociologist. He was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for many years. And he had been collecting these case studies and, and as a sociologist doing um, empirical studies around uh, different ways that people were living their lives, you know, either within dominant capitalist societies or outside capitalist societies, but looking at, you know, you know, places where participatory budgeting at the city scale was happening, worker-owned cooperatives, you know, collaborative economies, sharing economies. I mean, looking at all these different ways that people are doing things and collecting case studies, uh, doing empirical research on them, and and it and it's it says like, let's not be afraid. These are these are real utopias. <laughs> they are achievable. Sometimes they collapse very quickly because of outside forces, but we shouldn't stop trying. And so I sent him this exhibition catalog, thinking like, well, you know, who knows? He's some famous <laughs> academic guy. Like he'll never write me back. He wrote me back immediately and just started this really beautiful uh, friendship, which I took to be a kind of mentorship. And um, I had a wonderful experience coming to um, going up to Madison for what ended up being the very last of the real. Utopia conferences that was hosted, and by that time he was he was sick and, and wasn't even able to participate in person, um, but joined uh, joined remotely um, from from the hospital. And you could see even you know he had the nurse come on and say hi. His wife was there. I mean, it was like he had built a little utopia even uh, in his last days. So really, kind of a special person. And you know what I what I think that you know what I took from that was this kind of like this redirection, like. Yeah, dystopia. We, we can we can enjoy dystopias as a form of, of pop culture. Uh, we, we're, we're back to talking about RoboCop here at the beginning of this conversation, and those things, you know, they they can be really helpful for us to think about and try to avoid what we perceive to be some risks. But they also can slip, I think, dangerously into some kind of complacency or some kind of paralysis or the kind of inevitability that you're describing. And and I really think it was that that became a turning point that. I just wasn't interested in dystopias anymore. I really wanted to just turn the other way. And I think I'm, I'm increasingly trying to, and, and I'm now in a, in a situation where I'm, I'm a PhD researcher in the transition design program at Carnegie Mellon, which is really about very long-term thinking about, you know, better systems and, and how bigger, like systems that will never be realized in my lifetime, I might start working on now. And, uh, and it has to do with really thinking about a long-term preferred state. And so I become interested in some of the new, you know, you know, various movements popping up around this. I mean, I talk 
you know, a bit about Afrofuturism in the book, and I, I wasn't really even aware at that time about solar punk as a different movement, which I think has its own sort of range of limitations, but I can see in it a kind of, I can see the appeal, particularly to young adults today, for a kind of uh, social, literary, um, aesthetic genre that is optimistic, right? That 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 says like we can still do this, and we can we can do this by starting now. And so, one of my new projects I'll be working on uh, over the next years, I'm starting to put together a kind of experimental, kind of educational program that I'm tentatively calling the Solar Punk Design Academy, which I hope we'll be, <laughs> we'll be doing next year. Which is to say, how do we take that kind of optimism? look at the situation as it is and begin to reskill or skill ourselves up to become the people that will kind of like make the tools, make the systems, make the infrastructures that will allow us, our, our communities to become more resilient because we know that things are going to continue just to get harder. So we need to become more resilient and we can start doing that, but we probably need to start pretty soon. I think all of that, yeah, sort of steers towards this this just necessary optimism <laughs> that uh, yeah. we're, we're going to have to find a way to do it. And like, no one's going to save us, you know, no, no, no governmental policy is going to come along. That's going to flip the switch here. Um, it's really going to be in our hands. Yeah. That's, that's obviously been ev evident <laughs> by this very ineffective administration. So, yeah. um, you know. and if I could, if I could say one more thing, I think I mentioned this in the book, but one of the very last things that Eric Oldenright ever told me, and this is so beautiful and so relevant to the conversation we're having right now is that he said, if he could summarize his ethos in a bumper sticker, it would say, you can never relax. And I love that. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. We got We got to stay. We got to stay focused. And and I think I, I want to get us out before we get to off the dome and and the drop with with this kind of notion. I want to get your thoughts on it because I think in your answer, you know, you talk. Uh, you know, I beyond the optimism, which is just personally, this is like my own little personal thing. Like I'm always wary of the word optimism, mm. not because I think it's a bad word or idea, but in in my experience, you know, I get asked to talk about like a lot of heavy topics, right? Whether it's race or culture or, you know, a bunch of stuff that just is heavy, yeah. right? Climate, I do a lot of stuff with sustainability. And then I'll, I'll kind of like lay out the reality. Mm -hmm. And then folks are like, oh my God, this sounds terrible. But are you optimistic? <laughs> right? Like, you know, yeah. like they want you to like end on like the high note. Yeah. So everybody just doesn't feel like shit. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not really here to make you feel good about this, right? Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm raising the alarm, yeah. raising the alarm. Um, but what I what I do offer, because then sometimes people are like, oh my God, you're like such a downer. And I'm like, actually, I'm quite hopeful, Yeah, right? Because I feel like hope is a verb. Joy is, is an activity that's different from happiness, right? Like happiness is that capitalist bullshit, right? Let's just figure out how we can be always happy. And I'm like, no, I could be pissed and still be joyful, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So I say all that to lead into the the final question, which is, you know, as we're as you're laying out this great case in the book, I, I kept thinking about like how um, multidisciplinary this this work is, and how at each point as we go through this history of of capitalism, in the way in which it's been constructed over the past X hundred years, right? There's always been dissenting voices, mm -hmm. right? There's always been those that have said, you know, we're going to stand for labor, right? There's people in other worlds that, um, like I think about activists like W.E.D.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, that have pushed back against, they might not have always named capitalism, but they've named a, a byproduct of an extractive thing to sort of raise the alarm and, and point to it, right? So I say all that to say that in your mind, how do we continue to do two things? One, bring in those, those voices. Because one of the things I've confronted is that I'll be talking to people about future design and they think they're really broad in the way they think about stuff, but they're all using like the same mm -hmm. references, right? It's like talking to fantasy people and they all like Tolkien, right? <laughs> and you're like, is, is that where this ends, right? Um, so I'm curious about how do we bring in more voices, tell different stories, and in a way broaden the conversation without watering it down so we, we tell a, a more robust story of, of dissent. Yeah. Like how do, yeah. how do you think about That's that? That's great. 
so yeah, I, I think uh, I'm going to come back to this as a starting point, which is you know in, in the book and sort of in my my view, my perspective. I mean, it is so shaped by, of course, all of the bias of the life that I that I have lived, and and I will go ahead and name it that I am a you know cis white male who grew up in North America, right? So there's all kinds of um, uh, obvious uh, sort of social privilege that comes with that. And it also shapes a certain sort of view of the world. And I think a big part of what uh, the book is trying to accomplish and sort of the conversations that are happening in a broader space inside design are being like, oh, yeah, uh, hmm, maybe that's not everything. <laughs> maybe we can start to acknowledge that that's not everything. And maybe people don't even want what we're selling anymore. And, and, or maybe they never did, right? And so and there are, there are uh, you know, en endless histories of, of dissent uh, against that what begins as a kind of a colonial mindset that that like think filters all the way down into um, you know the professional design practices that I'm talking about, and so I mean I think you have to start with just sort of acknowledging that with with recognizing that, and then you have to start listening <laughs> to some of these other voices, and I, I actually think that we might you know again I, I, I'll take your lead here, and I won't say optimistic, but at least hopeful. That I think that in in design discourses we are giving airtime and paying attention to all kinds of indigenous forms of knowledge that have come well before we started, you know, inventing air conditioning and all these other things. All kinds of uh, you know voices of dissent, which are you know maybe uh, voices of dissent that are you know within the uh, capitalist society have been living in. People have been excluded from the gains or have been you know trampled on the pathway. And I think if we are if we're now at the point that we are able to be self-critical and uh, self-analytical, and we're at the point that we're able to listen to other people, then I think we can actually begin to, to forge new hybrid ways of doing the kinds of things that we need to do to, to identify what those preferred states look like and, and to get there. And I think it's going to look really different for all kinds of different configurations of humans that have you know, different, different things that give them the joy uh, and, and different states or different worlds that they want to occupy. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think to go back to the you know optimism versus hope. I mean, yeah, we can we we should be really clear eyed that it that many there are many things to admit are not good and have not been good, and um, but it's not inevitable and that takes work. That's why you can never relax. And so I think it's yeah. important to listen, forge those alliances, and you know more than anything, find those pathways towards towards a mutual benefit um, that can create you know habitable worlds for many. Absolutely. I'm all about that mutual benefit, brother. That is a, a beautiful way to, to go out on this. And you're right. We can't relax, right? Maybe <laughs> we should maybe we should slip that in and and replace like stay woke. Not because I yeah. think woke is a thing, but it's been stolen. Yeah. And and, and <laughs> yeah. people have like twisted it into some bullshit, right? So now we gotta come up with something else. Yeah. So we gotta start gotta, gotta start fooling the idiots, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I want to get us into off the dome, which are some rapid fire questions, literally first thing off the top of the head. And as I kind of teased at the beginning, I wanted to ask the first one about Detroit and Chicago, right? So as even though you do have a little bit of love for Chicago, so like I say, you're more magnanimous than I could ever be, <laughs> you know, what are the one or two reasons why Detroit is better than Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll start with, uh, despite having a population about, uh, I don't know, somewhere in the ballpark of a, of a third or a quarter of Chicago, Detroit still has better music and always has. <laughs> better musical history. I love that. Throw down the gauntlet, pissing <laughs> off the Chicago people that listen to the show. I love it. <laughs> um, my, my second off the dome question is a design focused, right? Um, I always ask this of, of when I get designers on the show to kind of share with me, um, sort of their best design versus their worst design. Like what's something mm. out there in the world that you look at and you say like, that was really done well. And then something else where you're like, this is just crap. And it can be anything. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have to be like a product, but just design and in the general holistic sense. Yeah. Oh man, that's a, that's a good one. A tough one. I mean, I think, uh, you know, like a, like a, a good and bad designer, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always so smitten with the new thing. You know, it's like the best project's always going to be the next one. <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I'll say, I mean, because it's, it's, it's the new thing that's out there. I mean, I, I was, I was thrilled as a graphic designer when I wrote this book, when the MIT press said, would you like to design your own book cover? <laughs> And I was like, yes, I would. Thank you for asking. <laughs> and it's great because I have a 10-year-old son and he has a friend on, on our street who just is great. He, he just loves to just 
just rib me about anything. And he saw, you know, I wrote this book, he saw the book cover and he just, he trashes it every time he comes over. Like, I think it's a little, <laughs> I think it's awesome. a little hard to read. I don't think anyone's going to like that. Maybe you could have tried a little harder. <laughs> so that's, I'm, who is this yeah, kid? No, he's great. <laughs> everyone needs one of him. Yeah. Everyone needs a Hugh Hilton. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to make sure he hears this because you listen to a lot of podcasts. So I'm talking about you, Hugh. And uh, that's my, okay. that's my son, Roman's friend. Um, awesome. I mean, something that's out there. I mean, I, I think it's, it's hard for me to pinpoint to, to objects, but I think it is, you know, probably some of the work that I did early on for, you know, really big transnational corporations that was, you know, research and design that was really meant to, you know, <laughs> put cheap commodities out into parts of the world that, again, I'll probably never visit. And so uh, I can't really point to it exactly, but it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of like, it was an important learning moment for me, but I also kind of wish I never did it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Fair enough. And, you know, the, the last off the dome question is, you know, obviously you're, you're an educator, as you've highlighted, you're working with, with young, young designers and, and all of the things that, that goes along with that, you know, as you're, as you're educating these young people and kind of shaping their perspective, what is a, a trait that you would offer to maybe them and also the audience that if you're, you're thinking about design or someone who's concerned about it, um, what's a trait that you think a, a good designer, quote unquote, should have? Mm, that's great. So, I mean, I, I think you have to be able to, to really think big and think systematically, but you have to also implement. And I think that's a little bit, yeah, in, in sort of the exploding, you know, possibilities and spaces of design, what implement means can mean a lot of different things. But um, I'm, I'm trying to not say like you still have to have a craft, but you still have to have something that allows you to, to create, implement, produce something really, really well. And without that, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it, I still believe that, you know, we have to be able to think really big, but the details still really matter. I mean, a really beautiful idea about some, you know, long, distant, beautiful future state has to be implemented with, with a lot of care and detail and finesse. And so trying to connect those two things together, I think, is still really important. That's awesome. Thank, thank you for that and those. So now we're at the final segment of the show, which is the drop, which is just anything at all that we think our listeners should know about or be interested in. And, you know, I'll go first. My drop comes from the world of anime and, and manga. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of that genre. And when I was a kid, I, I used to love this show called, well, there were kind of two big shows that sort of, I think, broke what we now call anime in, in American populace. Um, one was Robotech, mm. which is actually a, a combination of three Japanese animes which was put together into one thing called Robotech. And I loved this show. This was like an amazing thing. There was a show before that called Battle of Planets, which I also loved, which was based off a different Japanese anime. But between those two, Battle of the Planets and, and Robotech blew my mind. And you couldn't find anime on Netflix, right? Because one, there was no Netflix. But, you know, you had to go to like a convention and buy like videotapes and Laserdisc, like all this technology that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and even among the nerds at comic book conventions, like those of us who were interested in anime, this is the 80s, people were like, get the fuck out of here, right? Like you were, <laughs> even among a world of outcasts, you were an outcast. They had the smallest booths, they had all this stuff. But anyway, now that there's so much interest in that, there's a ton of like beautiful things that you can find. And I have this Robotech visual archive, which is three volumes that goes through each of the segments of Robotech. And it's just beautifully designed books. I, I got them all very recently. And I have some other things about Robotech that are from Japan that I found at conventions over the years. But Robotech visual archive is something you can find in online, any, any store, and it's three volumes. And if anyone's a fan of that or just loves like really cool character design and sketches and all that kind of stuff, I highly recommend them. And that's my drop. All right. That sounds great. I'll have to check that out and probably share that with my, my kids as well. We'll get a little more, we'll get a little more love on the block. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, you did the. I guess you did the the culture piece. But since I'm I'm talking to an anthropologist, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll do the book, and um, uh, and I'm do the professor thing here too, which is like it's a really big book, so I'll just warn everybody about it. But a book we that came out books. near the end of last year that's called The Dawn of Everything, uh, written by David Graeber, anthropologist who was also uh, pretty involved in the Occupy Wall Street movement, and. Um, uh, David Wengro, who's a, who's an archaeologist, and it's a it's a massive book, but it is essentially laying out the case that uh, 
and they, they do you know dozens and dozens and dozens of, of stories and case studies from across the world of pre-modern societies making the case that people have lived in so many radically and imaginatively different ways than what we perceive to be as like the way of living today that the, that the social and the political and the economic and the cultural forms that all of our <laughs> collective ancestors have have imagined and produced and lived are are so inspiring and so dramatic and so varied that we do sometimes maybe feel like we're stuck in a way yeah but we are not stuck and I, I just love that so it's uh, it's another way I guess of getting back to that hopeful piece that we can we can look way back and we can find all kinds of examples of how people have done things differently so we certainly are not stuck today absolutely it's not just the we were all hunter gatherers right and we did, you know yeah like it, it dis dispels again these popular notions that have been used to sell us this system right which is capitalism mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I i have not read that book but it's been a target of mine for a long time and it's it's a very popular book so i know that that's a a great drop so thank thank you for that one this has been an awesome conversation matthew i'm glad that you were able to to join me on the deep dive and have some fun and you know don't let that kid bully you like <laughs> screw, screw him <laughs> yeah thank you so much philip i really appreciate taking the time it was great uh, great to talk with you absolutely thanks again for being on the deep dive with me You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.